Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The True Christian. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Final Reminders. The fourth chapter of the book of Colossians, well, upon first reading it, it might seem just like, well, housekeeping. I mean, there's a couple of additional things, says Paul, as if he's tacking a few things onto the end of this very important letter. Paul has completed his appeal to the church, teaching them to resist false teaching and to walk in the truth. He's completed his instructions, but he's kept a few, well, housekeeping duties to the end. You know, the first in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, the passage we're going to study today, well, there's some reminders of what all Christians need to well, incorporate into their lives. And the second, the last passage in the book, the passage we'll study tomorrow, are his greetings to the church. Yeah, these matters do seem like a housekeeping list, a list assorted items of things that need doing. But in fact, I think it's so much more. See, the final reminders are reminders of what baseline Christianity actually looks like. This is about one prayer, two ministry, and three interaction with non-Christians in everyday life. And so I think this chapter is very instructive as to how early Christians were called upon to live on a daily basis. So let's read our passage today, Colossians 4, 2-6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So let's start with Paul's first instruction, the one about prayer. And here I am referring to verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That Paul would end on a note of the importance of prayer, well, that's actually not surprising. Go back to Colossians 3.16. Do you remember it? It said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So there's a reference to Scripture, the word. And here, at the end, there's a reference to prayer. Scripture and prayer, they do make up the backbone of the Christian experience. As we read and study Scripture, we're aware that God has given His Word. He's speaking to us. As we pray, we're now speaking to Him. This is the essence of our relationship with the Father. This is the food that sustains us. Now, this opening word continues steadfastly in English. That's two words, but in Greek, it's only one. Continue steadfastly, other translations say, simply persevere. Now, of course, that means that we continue to do something, but it also means that at times it will be attended with a great deal of difficulty. But regardless of the difficulty we feel, we must persist in it. Why? Well, first, because distractions to prayer are constant. As well, the rewards of prayer are abundant. Failure to pray will mean that so much will be lacking in our lives. Well, what do we pray about? Let me suggest a list of what must be accomplished when we pray. We need to pray daily for our physical needs, our daily bread, as Jesus put it. Each of us, as we face each day, are confronted with demands as well as threats and opportunities. Pray about our day at the beginning of each day. The things that worry you, bring that to God. 
tell him about it, even if it sounds as if it's just complaint about your troubles, be assured that the sovereign one, the one who gave his son for you, is not deaf to your worries and complaints. But you also need to pray about your spiritual needs. I'm speaking about the temptations that you struggle with, the state of complacency that so quickly threatens to overtake you, the danger and disappointments in your soul, the difficulty that you're having in seeing God's hand in everything. Pray about that. Then also you have to confess your sins. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Remember 1 John 1 verse 8, it says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the assurance that we have is that when we confess our sins, we do find a gracious heavenly father who is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins. Make sure you worship, uttering words of adoration and gratefulness to the one who created you, the one who redeemed you, and whose glory and beauty is the highest aspiration of your soul. Give him thanks. And remember to pray for your family, for your church, for your spiritual leaders, for the country in which you live, and the greatest needs in the world. You know, of course we can't pray for you know everything in the world, and don't let the enormity of this world's needs blind you from praying for something. And then as we're praying, Paul adds two very important things to remember. With watchfulness, he says. You know, sometimes this word is also translated as stay awake or even be alert. And if you're struggling as to what that might mean, remember those words of Jesus. Peter and the apostles are falling asleep as Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And Jesus in Mark 14, 38 says, watch. And there the word is watch and pray. Be mindful of the importance of this very hour. So I take that to mean that we should be alert at all times to threats and opportunities, to great spiritual warfare. We should be aware of what's going on in the spiritual realm. Constant prayerfulness does lead to an awareness of important moments. So while Jesus was in Gethsemane, the disciples seemed either overwhelmed by the emotion and passion of the moment and couldn't carry on, or even unaware of how great a moment this actually was. Jesus is saying, now if ever, it's the time to pray. Prayerful people are aware of spiritual warfare. They're aware of moments in time when great opportunities are before us. Be watchful, says Paul. And then one more word about praying. Paul says we should always be praying with thanksgiving. And the reason this is so important is that the very nature of the Christian life is that it must be a life of gratefulness, filled with gratitude, reveling in the blessings of God. The person who's grouchy, the person who sees the dark side of everything, the person who's constantly complaining about their circumstances, absolutely sure that, you know, others have it better than they do. That person is not consumed with God. You know, for one, I remind myself constantly that that God does not treat me as my sins deserve. You know, to the constant statement of our culture, in which people say, I deserve better than that, I respond, actually, God has shown me my sin, and I know with certainty that I deserve far worse than what I've gotten. But there's more. I need to remember that everything from my heart that beats to the air that I breathe to the fact that my mind still functions and can comprehend to the body that functions, are these not all God's gifts? My daily bread is grace, and I receive it from God's hands with thankfulness. 
More than that, Romans 8.28 tells us that God causes all things, all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Everything a believer experiences is an experience arranged by a merciful and loving God who's preparing for us the best possible eternity. Overflow, therefore, with gratefulness. Okay, the second housekeeping item, or the second special area of concern, is seizing the opportunities that lie before us. Look again at Colossians 4, 3, and 4. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You know, at first glance, verses 3 and 4 are merely an extension of verse 2. While you're praying steadfastly, remember to pray also for me, says Paul. And that is true. But it's what Paul has in mind when he asks for prayer that really should capture our attention. Remember that Colossians is a prison epistle. Paul's writing from prison in Rome. He's awaiting a trial before Caesar's tribunal. Now, we don't know the exact wording of the charges against him, but I would assume that the charges had to do with the riot that had occurred while Paul was in Jerusalem. Perhaps he is charged with disrupting the peace and the good order of the empire. After all, while he was in Thessalonica, the citizens there were saying he was turning the whole world upside down. Everywhere he went, riots and civil disorder followed in his wake. I mean, perhaps those were the charges. It's also possible that Christians, those who had been trained by Paul, had refused to pour out libations to Caesar, and that he could have been charged with sedition, creating a revolutionary movement primed to overthrow the emperor. Now, that was the charge. This would also have been very serious indeed. At any rate, I can't imagine anyone I know today who, if they had been in that circumstance, would not have requested prayer for the trial, for their release, that the tribunal would be able to see through these false charges. I mean, what else would a person ask prayer for? But notice what Paul does not ask. And that fact alone should arrest our attention. You know, if Paul's prison conditions, his upcoming trial, or the fact that he would face unjust execution doesn't seem foremost in his thinking nor his prayer request, what's he thinking about? And what does he want the Colossians to pray for? Well, the answer is that it all depends on what Paul thinks life is for. And I emphasize that because it seems clear to me that a great many of our prayer requests today are all prayers of deliverance. You know, prayers about health and jobs and safety and economic troubles, complaints. Please don't misunderstand me. That's important. But sometimes I think our focus has been all wrong. November is an exciting time at Back to the Bible Canada. This month, we offer you a booklet of meditations entitled Quiet Spaces for Christmas, a 30-day devotional focused on the themes of Christmas. It invites you to spend time daily reflecting on God's Word and hiding the truth in your hearts. We're also offering an alternative gift for the youngsters in your life. It's a wonderful story from the pen of Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway called Jake and the Christmas Surprise. This funny, thoughtful story is perfect for that bedtime read with the kids or grandkids. It also provides questions for reflection at the end of each short chapter. Choose one of these great Christmas resources as our gift to you. And if you'd like both or additional copies, they can be purchased at backtothebible.ca. We hope these resources will bless you and your loved ones this coming Christmas season.
Paul does want the Colossian Christians to pray for him, but he's really not interested that they pray that he would be delivered from prison where he's been wrongfully incarcerated. Since Paul is human, no doubt he's aware that he's suffering and being maligned, but he's also aware, as he tells the Philippian Christians, that his imprisonment is in Christ. Christ had directed him to that prison, and Paul is mindful that right here he was called upon to do the Lord's work. And that's a revelation. Paul's in prison because of false accusation, to be sure, but that's the secondary cause. That's not the primary reason he's there. He's in prison because his Lord and Savior, Jesus, has directed his footsteps so that he would be there at that moment. And that understanding really does color his attitude. He's in prison because it pleased the Lord for him to be there. Now, that doesn't take away the evil that's done to him. But if the evil was allowed by his sovereign Lord so that Paul should end up in prison, it was important for Paul to understand why he was in prison and what assignment the Lord had given him. And I pause there before I go on, because in verses 3 and 4, there are lessons we ought to take to heart. Instead of bitterness and disappointment and anger and the feelings that something that should never have happened has indeed happened, we need to ask, Lord, clearly you're sovereign over these things. And I need to find out what your good purposes are in this. So let's look at Paul's request. He wants prayer, first of all, that God may open a door for the word to be proclaimed. He wants to declare the mystery of Christ. Ask God, he says, to open doors for me in this. As to how those doors could be opened while he was in prison, well, we actually have two passages of Scripture that might indicate how that might be. The first is in Acts 28, verses 30 to 31. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now that passage is speaking perhaps about Paul's early experience in Rome while he's under house arrest, and it might be Paul's referring to that. Then he had the freedom to carry out a gospel witness as he wanted. But after some time, the situation seems to have changed. So in Philippians 1, Paul says that he's been chained to a member of the imperial guard, and consequently, the entire household of Caesar is talking. So it might be that Paul's speaking about the opportunity that he now has to clearly articulate the gospel to the imperial guard. Well, there's still another possibility. Paul might be looking ahead to the time he stands before the tribunal on trial for his life, asked to give an account of the gospel he's been preaching. That might be the door he has in mind. But at any rate, he wants special prayer that when he explains the gospel, that he might be clear and understandable, easy to comprehend, accurate to the true nature of the gospel. That's why he wants prayer. Now, it seems clear to me that the opportunity afforded to Paul was the greatest opportunity of his life. He had many great opportunities in the past. Churches were started. The Church of Jesus was going global. But this, right now, was an opportunity to rock the entire Roman Empire with Jesus. Paul's clarity, his lack of fear, his boldness, the fact that he wasn't, you know, turtling for fright, All of that was making it very clear to everyone that the gospel of Jesus was a robust faith that was able to endure great suffering and still hold fast and even grow during such moments. Paul's making it clear, not only to his world, but thinking about it, his attitude makes it clear to us today. 
Christianity is not a fair-weather faith. It rather makes people tough and resilient and not quickly frightened, not victims, but conquerors in Christ. We don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. We fear the one who saved us, who was raised for us. Our concern is with him, for we know he's concerned with us. This boldness, this clarity in gospel presentation, and this concern only that we speak the truth in understandable ways rather than cowering over the men who might do something to us. See, this attitude is the attitude that genuine Christianity produces in all who come to Christ. And hence, when in tough situations, when hard-pressed, when we're in a place we would rather not have chosen, we trust in God's sovereign design in all things, and we ask only that we remain faithful in the hour where God has put us. That's a lesson for all of us. Look not to complain. Look rather to remain faithful in the hour of your trial and look beyond it. Look to make the gospel known wherever you are. And so two important instructions. Keep praying, says Paul. And second, always look for divine opportunities for gospel advancement, even in difficult situations. Now the third instruction, that's found in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Although there are a number of commands in this passage, it's the first one. To walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that's the main command, and all the others show how to do that main command. So let's define our terms. What's an outsider? Well, to the ancient Jew, every Gentile was an outsider. And to the ancient Christians, every person who didn't confess Christ as Savior and Lord and was baptized and was part of a believing church, they were outsiders. To be in Christ was to be an insider. To be outside of Christ was to be an outsider. And so how is an insider to behave towards outsiders? So understand the context. We know from ancient documents that the non-Christian world was often suspicious of and brought accusations against Christians. For one, they were accused of atheism. Well, that's because Christians denied the existence of the Greek and Roman gods. We also know that Christians were charged with being revolutionaries because they refused to call Caesar Lord. We also know that the morality of Christians was under suspicion. Peter talked about that in 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And so Christians were a group of people in every way different in respect to the culture in which they lived. It's also true of Christians today. Our faith is at odds with the morality of our cultures. And what's to be done about that? Well, the answer is we're going to have to know how to behave in wisdom. We're going to have to know when to speak and when to remain quiet, when to share openly, when to be guarded. Be wise, says Paul, in the way you conduct yourself with outsiders. Some outsiders are very open to faith in Christ, and some will have you arrested. Understand that wisdom must guide you. Then in relation to that, Paul adds that he wants believers to make the best use of their time. What does he have in mind? Well, the answer is that Paul is assuming that the Colossian Christians are engaged in sharing the gospel with people, even as he was involved in sharing the gospel while he's in prison. 
Paul is in effect telling the Colossian believers, don't just sit around and wait for opportunities of witnessing and evangelism to fall into your lap. Rather, make the best use of the time you have. Use up every opportunity for the glory of Christ. And then he adds something about speech. Be gracious in the way you speak. See, the idea of speech seasoned with salt should not be thought of as we do today. You know, that that salt kind of adds to the taste of something. No, no. In the ancient world, salt was necessary. Without refrigeration, it was needed as a preservative. So seasoned with salt means that our speech prevents corruption. Speak words that are good, edifying. Don't be part of an argument or a part of making charges against others. Be uplifting, be encouraging. Speak in such a way so to make the gospel palatable. Answer the questioner, but be quiet and wise when the critic seeks to condemn you. Know the difference between the two. And then finally, Paul says that we should learn how we ought to answer each person. Did you notice the key is each person? And that's because people are different from one another. One person may have questions regarding the historical foundation of our faith, and as such, they want assurance that the faith is intellectually and historically true. But another person wants to simply know how to fill that deep longing in their heart. Another person may simply want to be argumentative, and still another is looking to trap you in your words and may want to damage the Christian faith in some way. In each situation, the approach to sharing our faith varies. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It requires wisdom in all circumstances. So if that sounds like housekeeping, well, I think it's much more than that. It's about the basics of our faith. Always be a praying people. Always look around for the divine opportunities. And always be wise as you interact with outsiders. Thanks so much, John. You know, it really is relevant to discuss the nature of our prayers. And do we really spend too much time on deliverance and too little time asking God for opportunity to represent him? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's natural for us to pray prayers of deliverance because every one of us goes through difficult times and we need God to rescue us. So let's continue to pray them. But if our prayers are truncated to only that, or when we do prayers together, you know, let's have a prayer time together, let's ask for the prayer requests, then all the prayers are related to deliverance. We've not yet learned how to pray as we ought to. And so I really encourage us to expand our ability to pray in the ways in which God has taught us to do so. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 Caribbean ministry cruise may just be the right mix between relaxing and spending time refreshing your walk with Jesus. You won't wanna miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, laugh with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest, Amanda Stott. With breathtaking scenery, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement, it's guaranteed to be an unforgettable vacation experience. Now it's filling up faster than we'd imagined, so touch base soon for more information to download the itinerary or to sign up. 
Just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by those who participate.